Welcome to the new Diplomatist Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Garrison Rado. Today, I have a very special guest with me, Mr. John Austin. Mr. Austin, thanks so much for being on the podcast. And would you take just a brief second to introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, John Austin. I'm director of uh, Michigan Economic Center, which is a uh, think tank centered on Michigan's economic uh, transformation. But I've been for some years a non-resident senior fellow with the Brookings Institution and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs where I've guided uh, those institutions' work around economic transformation in the American Midwest uh, region. Also been a former elected official 16 years on our State Board of Education in, here in Michigan. Well, so that's a very impressive resume. Let me just say it's an absolute honor to have you on the podcast today. And uh, thank you for agreeing to come on and to talk about your latest piece of writing, or one of your most recent pieces of writing, uh, which was published in uh, Newsweek. Uh, which you co-authored with Elaine Dzinski. Um, it's an opinion piece where you spoke about reforging strategic alliances to check China abroad and rebuild the economy at home. Um, but specifically, uh, you introduce a, a, a particular concept that you call uh, ally onshoring or ally shoring. Could you kind of walk through listeners who maybe didn't see the article in Newsweek what this concept is, and we'll, we'll sort of break it down from there. Yeah, let me give you a little context on how we got to be talking about uh ally shoring as the most effective path for the U.S. to kind of rebuild and uh, restitch its own even supply chains after the COVID pandemic, if we ever uh, reemerge. Um, Elaine Dzinski, my co-author, she and I worked together uh, some years ago on uh, binational um, Great Lakes region, U.S.-Canada, um, security, trade, economic uh, partnerships, how they could be enhanced. My focus has been mainly on how do we help accelerate the kind of economic transformation to more people and places in the Midwest, which everybody is very interested in after Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania sort of were responsible for Donald Trump getting elected. The, the interest in what could uh, communities that were still struggling, what could workers who might be anxious about economic and demographic change, how could we accelerate good things for them? It might be helpful towards healing some of the polarized politics. But Elaine has been spending her time around the world um, and has written about what she sees as, you know, China's efforts to historically, you know, really um, seize economic and strategic high ground uh, to really try to bulldoze the West-led economic uh, rules-based kind of open, transparent economic and political order uh, with with their Belt and Road Initiative, where they're enabling corruption and trying to create uh, dependency on states uh, as they offer to finance infrastructure, but really are offering to uh, make states more reliant on them. And you know, with the U.S. walking away from kind of NATO and international entanglements under the current administration, uh, many of our allies, including places like India and others, are you know feeling hostage to China's willingness to offer alleged help. So we, we sort of combined our thinking and said, you know, how now after this COVID crisis, if we have the opportunity to reopen fully, 
how do we best rebuild our economy? And, you know, we were seeing in this crisis pretty vividly what we've been uh, worried about for years, that the Chinese trying to take advantage of it, you know, hold our supply lines hostage, piggyback on our IT infrastructures to, um, um, you know, spy, frankly, and to steal intellectual property, uh, and then now seek to kind of be the ones who would be offering assistance uh, in medical products and in rebuilding to the world economy uh, as we uh, reemerge from the COVID crisis. And, you know, people immediately here in the Midwest and in the U.S. began talking about, you know, we're going to have to onshore these critical supply chains in information technology products and in um, our food systems and in our medical pharmaceuticals and those products. We can't be relying on China for masks and uh, pharma and drugs. And uh, so, but we propose, look, this a better strategy and more realistic uh, is let's use this opportunity to um, do what we're calling ally shoring, which is let's work with, again, our neighbors who are our friends like Canada and Mexico, where we already make things together um, to rebuild our economy and rebuild our production and supply chains in food and in medical products and in everything else. And let's also extend that uh, to our allies who share our values, who share our openness, who share our commitment to democracy versus um, state-run nationalist systems like China and Russia that are trying to uh, take down democratic and open economies and polities uh, around the world. So let's work with our partners in Europe and in Asia, um, who are our friends, the Koreas and the Japans, and let's rebuild our supply chains, particularly in critical areas, with our friends. Um, and that will effectively curb China's influence, and it will serve to rebuild our economies more successfully. Uh, we can't unwind trade and supply chains from the rest of the world, but we can rewire them so that we're working with friends who have um, our collective self-interest and commitment to the rule of law and openness and trans transparency and democracy. And that's the, the ally-shoring concept, much better than onshoring and hunkering down and retreating from the world and trying to put up walls and trade and everything else with our neighbors and countries around the world. Let's link arms again and forge a new political, economic, and trade partnership with uh, those uh, countries who share our values and our strategic interests about spreading democracy and openness and free and fair trade and free and fair elections around the world. You know, it's a, it's a fascinating concept, it really is, and it reminds me in many regards of the nonprofit organization founded by the former NATO Secretary General, Prime Minister of Denmark, uh, Anders Rasmussen, for the Alliance of Democracies Foundation, where he's attempted to start a Copenhagen Democracy Summit on an annual basis um, to, to bring, you know, security and economic discussions between democracies into a high-level uh, meeting on a regular basis. And he has spoken to some degree of what he calls an expeditionary economics program, um, but he really is focusing on trying to bring democracies to developing economies or economies coming out of, uh, of war or perhaps even failed state uh, status. Um, but what you're talking about is very interesting because it, it really is a partnership on all levels between already developed democracies at a high level. So 
could you give an example or two of what that might look like in practical terms, perhaps yeah, the so Trans-Pacific Partnership the maybe or something like that? We're going to um, be sharing some additional articles soon. One is, you know, just a major point is this, this ally shoring strategy would be uniquely helpful uh, to create new jobs and good and businesses in, you know, the, the kind of politically potent industrial heartland of the Midwest because we are the place that can, and we already did during the pandemic, um, convert our auto supply chains to make the ventilators and the masks and the things that were desperately needed around the country. And not very many places on earth have that ability. And so it will redound effectively to the Midwest to be the center of production and distribution with friends. And I mean, we have, we have strong integrated supply chains with Europe and with Canada and with New Mexico. It's better to not walk away from those, but to lean into those and make and even enhance our production of key products. Um, and you know that's um, one of the and then laying out how we are going to um, begin this process. Obviously, the next president, whether it's Trump reelected or Joe Biden, has to lead. You know, let's work with our allies again uh, to rebuild our economies and our political partnerships. Uh, and and the ally shoring strategy will serve to do both things. You know, a first step that we're going to suggest that could happen right now is um, even this administration, if they were interested, because I think both Joe Biden and Donald Trump say they're very serious about checking China and their nefarious intent. Well, an ally shoring strategy is the best way to check their nefarious intent around the world. Um, but starting right now, we could begin to, with our allies, you know, begin to identify how how are our supply chains and critical industries and critical products like um, information technology um, devices, like uh, medical supplies, like even our food systems. How do they work today? Because we were, you know, the pandemic exposed, like, you know, we can't make enough, say, masks if a critical element is coming from China and now China... <laughs> both doesn't want to give it to us or, you know, we can't get our hands on it. So we should be identifying the critical supply chains that are most important for national security reasons and for um, our own, you know, economic reasons. And then we should be understanding and mapping how they work and then, you know, begin the process of saying how could they be reworked so that they're more resilient, they're more redundant, they're, you know, a, a critical component doesn't hold the whole supply chain hostage if it's held by some... Uh, country that doesn't want to work with us uh, and and that would be a, the first kind of steps and obviously a, the next administration could lead an aggressive rebuilding of economic partnerships and ally shoring strategy um, with our friends and allies around the world which you know as we argue would be um, redound to our economic and political benefits it would reestablish kind of the west-led um, liberal in the right sense of the word, meaning open, transparent, democratic, international community as the one that other countries can work with who want to finance infrastructure development, who want to, you know, have economic intercourse and trade. But I want to go back to, you know, one of the, the virtues of this strategy, too, is it's these reasons like my home area of Michigan and the Midwest that are kind of in an economic transition from an industrial age to an information age, and many communities haven't made that transition. They lost their big manufacturing employers. That's where folks are most anxious and then angry, and they're, they're more um, 
susceptible, understandably, to demagogues who promise to bring back the economy of the past. We're going to bring back coal and steel or and to blame immigrants or people of color or a changing world for somehow getting advantage at your expense. But when you create new economic activity in these older industrial communities, which are the American Midwest and other parts of the country too, but it's also the Midlands in Britain. Um, it's the Ruhrgebiet, the Ruhr steel and coal country in Germany. It's northern France and uh, parts of Italy that are like our Rust Belt. That's where the sort of populism and the demagogues, that's what drove Brexit. That's what gr- drove the kind of angry French... Uh, Marine de Le Pen and the National Front, that, that group. The nationalism yeah. and, the, and certainly the, the xeno, xenophobia, kind of the nativism, let's, let's blame and fear immigrants. That's where it comes from. So when you heal the economies, you you can help really um, improve the political polarization, and people are much um, more comfortable with a changing and globalized world if they feel basic economic security. And so that's a big part of the Ally Shoring project as well. You know, I think it's a, an intuitively appealing concept, but in my mind, I think there's probably two significant questions that people might have as potential obstacles towards seeing this to pass, uh, maybe even three. Number one would probably be a domestic political factor, correct? I mean, depending on who wins this, this fall, we don't necessarily have to go into the politics of that. But, you know, number two, on an international level, it seems that there's there's challenges to this to this good idea from, from two sides. On the one hand, it's the obvious one, it's China. But on the other hand, it's also Europe, and I, I want, if you're willing, I'd like to get you to discuss Europe for, for a second as well. You mentioned some of those regions that have been left behind and, and perhaps are the, the European equivalent of Rust Belts. You know, considering that much of European representation is done at a Brussels level, uh, at a level you know, that is more attuned to Davos and Berlin and, and, and Paris uh, rather than the, these rural regions of Italy and France and so on, it seems that European economic policy has has drifted more protectionist on, on a more subtle level than perhaps Donald Trump would say here in the United States, where, you know, he said trade wars are a good thing. He said the tariffs are, are, are good for the economy and other, you know, somewhat dubious economic statements. In Europe, they don't say those things, but they have designed a very sophisticated technocratic bloc that favors internal trade over external trade. And now they have reason to be suspicious of Washington after four years of Trump. How do you coax European leaders to loosen their control over, you know, EU trade generally to to be willing to look at this as more of an all democracy effort globally rather than, hey, let's take care of ourselves in case the Americans, you know, check out again? Well, I think, um, you know, two two things to keep in mind is just as, you know, kind of our domestic politics was upended and in some sense exploded or imploded – when you know a, a handful of states that responded to Trump's nostalgia and nativism uh, and you know nationalism made him president, uh, it, it you know that's what enabled this kind of pullback from the international order on the U.S.'s part. The the you know the the reality of um, new protectionism, new kind of isolationism and nationalism in our own politics. It's the same thing is you know has has happened within uh, and it's very pernicious where the democracies the open internationalist democracies of most of the you know European countries that are part of the EU 
but in, in country by country, it's you know the same dynamic. You know, the 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 Le Pens did not succeed in um, in France, but you know the Boris Johnsons did in Britain, and so within each country in Western Europe, you're seeing you know the 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 problems in my view or the danger when you know this neo populism, as I call it. When it wins, when it takes over, just as it has in our country, um, you know, it tends to um, undermine an open, free, uh, inter, you know, um, trading order and and international co- collaboration commitment f- from those countries from within. You know, Germany and a few other countries, you know, are still trying to lead Europe to, and they're left holding the leadership baton that we've advocated. Um, Angela Merkel right now, uh, and you know I think they're understandably as a EU, but also as individual countries now. You know, can we really not count on America to lead uh, in the continuing building of an open, free, democratic, rules-based, um, not corrupt and destructive, um, which is what China and Russia offer um, international order? So if the U.S. is really not going to lead that, um, you know, we we have to keep the EU project going. We face obstacles when, you know, Boris Johnson and the Brexit, you know, driven by the same um, nationalism, populism, loss of control rhetoric, anti-immigrant rhetoric. You know, it's challenging for an EU to continue as a going project when within some member countries is the same neo-populism and anti, you know, internationalism and anti-immigration coming to the fore. But uh, I think if, if we were to reforge or be wanting to rebuild our own leadership, our soft power, which is tremendous, by you know restitching positive, engaged, affirmative trade, economic, political relations with our allies who share our democratic values, then the EU would respond, and the, and the European countries, those who aren't hostage to a you know a demagogue still in power would also respond in my view. Well, I believe that that's a very plausible outcome and and turning to the second half of my question being more the the, the Chinese half, um, I think that there has been a a latent knowledge for the last 20 to 30 years as China grows more economically strong. um, There's been sort of a a common wisdom, if you will, particularly since the, the Bill Clinton and the George W. Bush administrations that if we invite China into the family of nations, so to speak, economically, um, as they grow, as they open, you know, economists like Milton Friedman back in the 80s said that economic freedom equals political freedom. And so there was this belief that when China ascends to the WTO, when they start interacting with the West, when their industrial capacity expands and their trade levels increase with the democratic countries, there will be natural inertial forces pulling them towards democracy. And China and Beijing in particular has, has really shocked the world the last 20 years in pulling off what the Soviet Union never could, which was a relatively market-based economy with a strictly authoritarian, um, still, I would say, sort of a, a new form of communist um, political structure with limited personal freedom and a high surveillance state. And so right. now that people so are... That's, that's, you know, that's exactly right. So you know, the assumption that with an open economy and kind of empowering entrepreneurial citizens to, you know, think of 20 years ago, you know, 30 years ago, Chinese could not travel abroad without a minder, you know, because they 
they want to escape. Now Chinese are everywhere on economic relations, but they haven't um, opened politically and created any political freedom. If anything, they've gotten worse, not better. So I think the New Deal, the ultimate end game here is is we have to be willing to say, and we can only say it as kind of with a refashioned multinational um, West-led um, democratic uh, alliance is to say, okay, if you want to continue to play in the international economic community, um, we're going to expect some uh, political reforms at home. If China doesn't deliver on those political reforms, and that's why we have to stay strong with our allies, of which who are many, and you know, and folks who would rather be allied with us in the developing world than with China's corrupt and destructive partnership. Um, but, but we have to be willing to say, as a fraternity of, of open, transparent, democratic nations, if you want to play in our economy, um, which collectively would be you know, the biggest family of economies on earth, we're going to expect some political reforms. You don't make political reforms, you don't get to play. That's the new message that's got to reach China, um, but it can only be delivered by a strong alliance uh, like we once had. Well, and I, I think that raises the even deeper question then that if you look at financial historian Niall Ferguson's recent works, he's been calling the recent trend, particularly in the last 18 to 24 months with China, a Cold War 2.0, as he says, or a second Cold War. Do you feel like that if China is unresponsive, as they likely would be, to democracies making such a call and democracies form more of a unified economic bloc, what does that do to global trade? Are we entering a new Cold War era waged more by trade than nuclear weapons? Um, well, you know, if, if yes, if, if there is a, a kind of a, a, a global alliance of open, transparent, um, you know, democratic allies that was willing to stand together to, you know, enforce, I mean, basically, you know, we, the, the Soviet bloc and it came down um, from within after a long period of containment and it came down from within because it was economically rotten at the core ultimately. So, you know, we'd, you'd have to have a Western alliance or a global alliance because it needs to be more than just the West. It needs to be the countries in Asia, you know, Thailand and Vietnam and, and in Africa, many of them would rather be on our team than the Chinese team if we offer them that opportunity. Um, that says, you know, you're not going to be trading with us or to get all the benefits of that uh, and, you know, be willing to contain China um, and, until they, you know, want to reemerge and participate in, in constructive ways, not destructive ways, which is what, you know, the hopes were for the last 20 years. Unfortunately, they put the pedal up to the metal on many of the destructive things, like, you know, um, stealing intellectual property, like trying to extend uh, their surveillance state around the world through information technologies. Now, if they didn't do those things, you know, you'd have a different story about their participation in the international economy. Um, so, you know, if they really continue to try to seize the economic and political strategic high ground uh, and dominance, then we have to collectively um, not allow that to happen, but also acknowledge, you know, that they can participate in an integrated economy if they are willing to play by our rules, not their rules. 
just sort of to close out the discussion, because I do want to be respectful of your time as well, sir, which I know is valuable. Let's let's put your other hat back on for a second uh, when it comes to your work in, in Michigan, because if America is going to lead a, a global coalition of democracies on an economically integrated level, particularly in the face of what could very well be an extended period of competition against China, we're going to need workers who are equipped for that new economy you mentioned earlier. And the Rust Belt will have a huge part to play in that. Can you speak a little bit about some of your more recent writings in Brookings and elsewhere about closing that, that digital divide between rural and urban and even between Rust Belt and, say, the more developed coastlines? Well, yeah, and so, you know, well, after the 2016 election, everybody started looking at this region again, and it kind of, its, it's, it's description is that it was a Rust Belt, you know, was, was reanimated. It's for a long time not been, you know, a rust belt. It's really, there's two Midwests, as I call them. There's, there's, there's one where old manufacturing and food processing capitals like Minneapolis, which was, you know, the flour capital, milling capital of the world, or Pittsburgh was the steel city. They've evolved a long time ago, and now Pittsburgh is thriving on AI and robotics and medical, and Minneapolis is thriving for a long time. So it, we, there are many, most of the bigger cities, we've got more university towns like the one I'm in, Ann Arbor, that are just killing it in a global knowledge economy, uh, you know, the Madisons and the Iowa cities, because, you know, a, a dynamic tech-driven knowledge economy is, uh, grows out of major research universities and the things and the people that they kick out. Look at why Silicon Valley exists. It's because of Stanford and Berkeley and federal labs and Boston works the same way on Harvard and MIT. So we were blessed with many of those universities. But we have a lot of the, we just have so many small and medium-sized factory towns and rural areas that used to, you know, make a piece of a refrigerator or piece of electronic components, and that's long gone, and nothing's come back there. And that's where the, uh, you know, the, the kids have left, and that's where the community ain't what it used to be, and people are anxious, and they're disconnected often from high-speed internets, and so they can't even play in a COVID-changed world where people are going to be looking for saner places to live. And, you know, now that we've learned you can do anything from anywhere, you know, a nice small town or a beautiful town on a great lake might look pretty good. So we've got a lot of work to do, and we were, you know, that's been my focus, accelerating economic change um, in the communities in particular and the places that weren't, hadn't turned a corner in a very different economy. And, you know, part of turning that corner is, you know, there's not jobs for people just them screwing a bumper on a car. You're programming a robot on a high-precision, clean room-like assembly line. So you've got to have new skills that, you know, the technical training and the post-secondary education to be um, someone who's able to work in a very different, changed economy. Now, the, the upside of all that is there just aren't too many places on earth uh, that have the combination of innovation horsepower in our companies, uh, global companies that, that research, invent new technologies, make things and sell things around the world. And the institutions like major research universities where we have 20 of the top 200 global universities, uh, the best on earth, that produce a disproportionate share of the U.S.'s talent and innovation, new intellectual property, new products, uh, engineers, scientists, uh, technicians, MBAs. We pour them out of our 
you know, schools like Ohio State and University of Michigan, University of Wisconsin, which are bigger than all the schools on the coast and just produce more talent and more innovation and do more research. And you saw that at work, you know, as we turn to respond to the COVID crisis. It's the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and it's the Cleveland Clinic in, uh, in Cleveland that are developing the tests and the vaccines. And it's our auto production companies like Ford and GM that immediately turned their highly integrated supply chains all across the North America and the world to stop making, you know, auto parts and make ventilators um, at scale. Nobody else can do it. It was Cummings Engine, which makes clean diesel products in, in, in Indiana and sells to the world the, the cleanest running, you know, uh, big engines for tractors and machinery. They combined with 3M in Minnesota uh, to begin cranking out the masks that, you know, we needed tens and tens of thousands of them. And so, you know, there's so many places on earth that have this innovation horsepower. And as we rework our supply chains in critical industries, you know, we're going to be the ones that do the work and get the good jobs. And those good jobs are, as I said, they're going to be automated. But when we're doing more of that work, you're putting more people to work running automated systems and installing them and installing the, the new information technology to run smart factories and more smart factories could be built here. You know, that's just how the thing would, would play out. So it's an opportunity, an upside of the horrible COVID crisis. Uh, if we pursue a kind of ally shoring strategy, lean into our integrated global supply chains with our friends while we um, say to the Chinas of the world who are trying to undermine our democracies, we're going to work globally with folks who want to make things together. Uh, and if you want to participate in that economy, you need to do so based on our rules, not try to rewrite the rules so that they're, they're, it's a model of corruption and dependence on China. Well, on that very integrated and globe-spanning answer, which was really informative, I'm afraid we'll have to wrap it up. But sorry, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for all of your insight and your experience that you brought to it. It was an honor to have you, and hopefully we can have you again sometime. Thanks to be with you.